0: Welcome to Resilience Rock Sales, your front row seat to rocking your sales game. I'm your host, Stacey Kopas. Today's episode is brought to you by the Academy of Resilience Inner Circle. For more information, head to Academyofresilience.com.au. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Resilience Rock Sales. Today, I am joined by James Schramko, author of Work Less, Make More. Uh, welcome to the show, James.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Stacey.
0: I'm super excited. James is a model of consistency and longevity on podcasting, and this is the very beginning. So definitely a, a person to aspire to as far as that goes. And I know that I've definitely learned a lot from listening to your podcast over the years as well. So thank you for being so prolific and consistent.
1: Well, yeah, it's, it's been a while. <laughs> You're going to have lots of fun things too. You'll probably lose a couple of recordings. Uh, you'll have a guest ask you to remove it because they've had a life change or something. There's all sorts of weird things that can happen with podcasts.
0: Oh my goodness. Well, I'm going in prepared and look, it's all about resilience. It's the first podcast. So I guess that helps when those things do happen and there's always going to be something that goes wrong. That's life. And it's all part of the adventure though. And speaking of adventures, I'd love to hear a bit about your backstory and what led you to being known for Work Less and Make More.
1: I guess, the, I, guess I was living the opposite of that for a while. I was working a lot. Um, in short, I found myself in a full-time career during an economic downturn in the early 90s in debt collection, actually. So it was quite an interesting field. I uh, learned a lot about humans and communication and i moved my way through into administrative type roles and then into the sales field and at that time i was starting to generate a family and my need for income living in sydney meant that i was going to be applying myself there was no internet in the beginning of the 90s so the world we live in now just it was very different than what was there then, and at that time, I really felt like I didn't have much choice but to work harder and I needed to continually earn more, and we needed more. We needed a bigger car, we needed a bigger house, we had more kids. I had four kids every couple of, couple of years we'd have a new kid, so it's just like this pressure and this workload was intense and one of the one of the strategies i had at the time was to increase my abilities so that i could be more employable and people would pay more and when i was selling i would sell more and then i it led me to being appointed as a manager and as a as a manager i wanted to be the best manager and we had to sell more and meet targets and i kept getting promoted through to the role of after that was general sales manager. And then I became the general manager, my last role. And as the general manager, I had this massive responsibility. I was running a, a, a dealership that was split over three physical locations. There was over 70 staff. It was, um, $50 million a year revenue business. There was a lot of pressure from the manufacturer. Uh, the owner of the business was, to a large degree absent, so I was trying to do this all by myself, and I was sort of, you know, early 30s at this time. So one thing I'd observe with with my clients at Mercedes-Benz is a lot of them had their own business, and some of them had boats, or they played golf, or they were doing things that seemed a little more interesting or exciting than just slaving away in an office for someone else. And so I had this sort of suspicion that maybe I should be looking to have my own business. And I tried to get equity in this dealership. It was certainly something I asked for. And as a high achiever, it's not out of scope, but because it was family owned and a little bit complicated, they sort of said, oh yeah, maybe one day, but it never panned out. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to do this on my own. But by now, Uh, in, uh, we're talking sort of 2006, 2007, the internet was starting to become interesting. And I thought maybe my business could be online because I'm good at selling and maybe I could just sell things other than just cars in my local geographic area. Maybe I could sell things anywhere in the world. And I, I sort of opened up all the possibilities. I wasn't sure what I would sell, So I set about figuring out how to build a website because I'm going to need that to sell something online. And as it turns out, kind of accidentally, I found a lot of other people were struggling to build a website too. And by sharing with them the software that I'd found that helped me build the website, I was able to sell that as an affiliate and get commission. And that was my first online income. A couple of years later, two and a half years later, I quit my job to go full-time online and believe me, I was working really hard when I did that. I was like, I need to make sure this is going to stick. I'm going to just work really hard. I work seven days a week. I work probably a hundred hours a week. So it was no change in um, the hours, but I was working now on my own thing and learning and building. And then eventually I was able to sort of sit back and and get it up to a run rate that was sustainable and then ease back off the off the throttle a bit and say, okay, we've now, we've lifted off, we're at altitude, I just want to maintain altitude for a while and just leave the controls on autopilot, just go back into the back of the cabin there and enjoy a meal for a second and watch a movie. It's like, <laughs> and as I started taking a, a day off, like Sunday and then Saturday and Sunday and then eventually Monday, Saturday, Sunday, and then. Monday, Saturday, Sunday, Friday. I got into a three day work week cadence about eight years ago. And then what I realized is that I can still maintain my income, even though I'm not working as much. And then I started finding lots of ways to get more leverage. Some more, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about productivity, but I think leverage is the right word. You can get leverage from your team, you can get leverage from your business model. And you can get leverage from tools. And that's increasingly in the public eye right now because of AI. But before (laughs) all that, you know, there are certainly some choices you can make to move your position from almost unsustainable to highly sustainable.
0: Yeah. And I I can't imagine, like you mentioned there, you know, pressure and responsibility and, you know, both. As you know, as a leader in the business, but also, as you said, if you've got four kids at home living in Sydney, I'm a Sydney cider even back then, who was expensive to live in Sydney. What was what was that like as far as that? I guess the the initial being back in the role before you discovered online and all those type of things. What was that like sort of managing that pressure of being husband and father and I guess, almost being a parent to 70 people that you were responsible for as well. What was that like at the time?
1: It was intense. It was um, too much pressure for a young man. You know, I, I started selling when I was about 23 and I'd have customers tell me, you're too, you're too young to be selling BMW. It was at the time, my first two years. And I was thinking, well, yeah, I guess I could, I could believe them, but I'm, my results wouldn't show otherwise I was actually getting pretty good at it uh, but I started dressing more like an old man you know I had glasses I had a Jeeves and Hawks tie from London Savile Row I'd had the expensive shoes and pen I started to look and feel more like what they needed me to be to be selling a luxury car but that wasn't me real me's more t-shirts bare feet but I guess I had to put on my work warrior face to go to work. So it's, it took a lot of energy. And I think, uh, when I started that car industry sales role, it was sort of 11 day fortnights, but in reality I was working every day, even on my day off. If a customer came in and I'm not there, I'll, I'll try and get up to the dealership or at least follow them up on the phone and not lose a sale. Cause any one of the other five would happily steal my commission. So it was always on, it was just burning adrenaline. And I like, even as a, as you know, as the stakes got higher as a leader in that last role, like it's all on me. I remember this situation where we had to move the dealership. <laughs> when I started there, we were renting some other place because we just started construction on our actual place. And when that place was finished, it's like, okay, we're going to have to move. And the owner of the business got on a plane and went overseas for weeks. They like they disappeared. Too much pressure. And I had to move the entire dealership from one place to another. That's like there was so much junk too. This owner liked to collect things and keep things. They were so frugal, they wouldn't buy new things. They had all this extra stuff in storage and, and like, or well, what are we going to take? What are we going to leave? I knew if I got rid of stuff, I'd get in trouble. Uh, but at the end, it was taking up like seven car spaces full of crap. So I ended up just chucking it. They were furious when they got back. But I mean, it's and that sounds stupid, like a little thing like that. But you chuck someone's 20 years worth of storage, <laughs> they're going to get upset. I'm like, well, where were you? I remember the first night when I took over that new dealership, there was a bucket of keys and none of them were labeled. And no. I spent about four hours walking around the dealership with a bucket, trying keys indoors to figure out what opens what, you know, all new security alarm. We had these bollards out the front to to stop people stealing the cars. We had to coordinate moving all the cars, all the people, all the desks, all the phones, all the power. Uh, it was just massive. And, you know, I was, I was still quite young you know early 30s and then i get to go home and and face all these kids and my wife and like it was it was a lot of pressure and i actually feel like these days probably i had some kind of uh post traumatic stress disorder from all of that the industry was a tough industry it was um you were just under attack from all fronts you had your team nagging at you you had your family to fend for, you had the owner who like wouldn't make decisions or send anything back for approval or give you any guidance whatsoever. And then I had the manufacturer who were, uh, I mean, it's frightening what happens in enterprise level. We're seeing a glimpse of that now with some of the news we get about some of these big pharma companies and political lobbying or whatever. But I can tell you, I've seen all of this firsthand. I would be driving home at the end of the month, and then the manufacturer would call up and they'd say, hey, uh, about your month end, we're going to include 20 cars from next month in this month's reporting. And I'd say, but they're not delivered. And they'd say, yeah, but we need the numbers for Germany. And I'd say, but they're not even in the country. They're still on a boat. They're like, sorry, but we need to send it off because we're under target. And uh, so we're doing it anyway. And then they'd hang up the phone. And I mean, I would just, I was so compromised and my, my, my blood would boil. I was like at breaking point in this frustration of just put in blood, sweat, and tears for the month. And now they want to fudge the numbers and i got no owner to talk to about it. I can't really share it with the team. It was my burden to carry. And then I have to deal with that. And I'm not given any tools or help to, to deal with that either. So i I guess I found myself in some of the books on my library here to work my way through this. Everything from Tao to Ching to uh, the Art of War, right? I, that I was I was learning from from the greats from hundreds or thousands of years ago uh, to find answers because they weren't going to be coming to me. I had to take all this responsibility, and it was a huge burden to carry. And I think probably. Uh, one of the scariest things I've ever done was quit that job because I was getting a big pay- paycheck and benefits. But it's also when I look back, I just think, "Oh my God! Like, thank you for doing that. You've you've saved our life." You know, I look at past me. Uh, I don't know how you had the courage to do that at the time, but at the same time, you had to, or you would just burn up into a ball of anger and depression. So.
0: Oh. What did you do to, first of all, obviously it sounds like you're in survival mode for a lot of that. Like you wouldn't have even had time. Like when you mentioned reading books, I'm like, how did you even have time to read a book in, you know, in, in that space? So... Everyone's got
1: time to read a book. Uh, yeah. It's something I started early. Uh, the first sales book I read, I was 12 years old. Really? Yeah. I was actually competing in a sailing competition in Perth. I was about 12 and... At the end of the competition the the adults there was three adults I was racing with, and I was the little kid. they used to have these bailer boys in the boat, like this just a little three adults and one kid, and they would just run around the boat, tying up all the knots and and scooping water out later on. they dropped to three that that was a silly weird dynamic, but anyway, they put me on a midnight special flight back from West Australia to Sydney and I was wide awake and I went to the bookstore there and there was no magazines. I used to buy a sailing magazine or whatever. It was just a book, a bookshelf. And one of them was this Tom Hopkins, How to Master the Art of Selling. And so I read this book on the plane on the way back just through boredom. And this was, I think, well before there were TV screens on the back of the seat. So that's the first sales book I read. But as as I was making my way through my career, I discovered that this kind of university of Book library is a good return on investment. When I became a salesperson, I went down to the Australian Institute of Management bookstore and I bought six books on selling and I read them all in one weekend. When I became a sales manager, I went and bought six books on sales management and I read them all in one weekend. And I think one of the biggest lessons I had was when I had an administration job. I was seconded to a sales team and they were all the best of the best. They were like the top kind of sales. They came from Xerox and Hutchinson Communication and, and we started up this new division of a digital telephone company called Vodafone in Australia in 1993 and I was just uh, the, I was the one putting the phones in and out of stock, doing stock control and administration and I was given to these sales team. And I'm like, these people are like the wild west. They're crazy. And they, they would, um, they'd, I'd go to their meetings and they would be talking about spin selling by Neil Rackham and they'd go through chapters and we do role plays and stuff. And like, this isn't, I'm not interested in this stuff. This isn't me. And then some human resources lady in the company profiled me and I did some disc profile and the result came back and she said, by the way, you're actually perfect for selling. I said, really? She goes, yeah. You know, if you consider a sales role, uh, this is, you know, this is a good pathway for you. I'm like, I don't want to sell. I've already been a debt collector. I don't think sales is for me. I'm not like these people. So I actually never associated myself as a salesperson before selling, even during selling and even after selling. I've never been that classic salesperson, but apparently my profile is quite good for selling, uh, which is uh, probably made it a little easier for me than it might have been for someone who's who's not suited to to selling from their personality. And there was another profiling we did at some other point where there were four quadrants, and there was like a, an expressive and a driver, and then analytical, and the other one was amiable. And when I found people who were amiable, they were really good at selling. They were just too soft skinned and too vulnerable and would be damaged by having to do some of the things that the sales process involves. So I always found that quite interesting.
0: And you mentioned there the being too, you know, too soft-skinned or something like that to to be in sales. And so as far as that goes, then what role do you feel that then resilience has had in your success in sales and business? And then in generally, what, what role do you feel that it plays?
1: Well, I think it's a, a core skill to have resilience. If you're not resilient, you'll be trampled uh, in life in general. I think because, and especially in the last few years, in the last few years, what we've seen is a mass uh, a mass scenario of being controlled by governments and uh, even, I don't know, it probably borders on a psyop operation in a way but we basically turned the public against each other even with false narratives and were able to pull it off through mass advertising and and coordinated conditioning of society and as, as someone who's been used to freedom and who is well and truly responsible for oneself and in control i was absolutely horrified by how that went down and I, I see people being very anti resilient. And if you're anti resilient, it just means you're going to be controlled and you're going to fit into someone else's plan. I love that old saying, you know, if you don't have a plan, the chances are you'll fall into someone else's. I think that's pretty true of society. A friend of mine, John Carlton, talks about most of society just being in a trance. And it's, and you hear other people like these, the matrix type people, they're like, you know, the red pill, the blue pill and all this. And I think it's become a bit political, but. I do feel like having a high level of acuity or awareness can let you observe what's happening and be more in control of your own destiny. A it, 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 simple metaphor is going from sitting in the back seat, strapped into a car seat, to going into the driver's seat. Like what seat of the vehicle would you like to be occupying? Because if you strapped into the car seat, uh, and my daughter remarked about this this morning, because she's she's four now, she lets herself out of the chair when we get when we pull up. She's daddy when I was little. I didn't know how to open my car seat. And I'm thinking about it, yeah, she was strapped into a four position harness, and there's no way she could let herself out by design, but a lot of people are going through life in that position. they're just strapped in, and they don't know how to get out of it. You get out of it by uh building your resilience and building your self responsibility. But it's definitely true that saying about uh, it's not how many times you get knocked down. It's like, it's how many times you get back up. Uh, you you will have and encounter challenges on the way through. And as some of my rich clients put it to me, uh, they would say, and these are people worth $200 million, et cetera. They would say, James, you're going to have to crawl over broken glass at some point if you want to get to the other side. Another one of mine. He would say, uh, you're going to have to eat beans. There'll be phases where you just eat beans. This guy owns most of the residential building towers in a suburb of Sydney. And when he first bought his land, he could afford nothing to eat except for a can of beans. He'd have half a can of beans each day. That was his whole budget for food. And he went through that mental phase. But I think other things like sailing taught me resilience because you're against nature and you can't control everything, and there will be, uh, there'll be all sorts of things happen to you that you can't control, and it's how you react to it that you can control. And I especially like that saying from Tony Robbins that he, things happen for you. If you just adopt that framework, it doesn't matter what the challenge is. If you say, well, this happened for me. Now what am I going to do as a result of this? How will I react to this for the things that I can control? I think that's going to serve you well.
0: And it's just that that simple word swap, isn't it? The happening to rather than happening for. And, you know, looking at language as one of my resilience rocks and one of those pillars of resilience, because, you know, I, I personally discovered my own in my own life, as soon as you you realize you can't change the facts of a situation, but you can change the story you tell about it both the story you tell yourself and the story you tell the world and you can change what you do next and it's just super powerful and tying back that responsibility piece as well and that's actually the first chapter in my book is responsibility and it's one of those things that it's like, often it's most important but it's probably the hardest for a lot of people and I and I agree with you over the last few years, my goodness, just seeing so many people go, government, tell me what to do rather than it's like, frightening. It, it blew my mind. It blew my mind. It's
1: like, um, even on a basic level, people still rely far too much on a general practice doctor who spends very little time on nutrition or whatever. I've had health encounters along my way, as we all do, where the first piece of advice that was given to me turned out to be not very helpful. And upon going deeper in other areas, I've found way better solutions, but you have to own it. And some tells of people who aren't responsible are they blame the government or they blame um, whoever, a God of some kind, or they, you know, they, they they hope to win the lottery. That's their only possible solution to solving the, the woes of their financial destinies to win the lottery. That's defeatist. And if you remove those as an option now, it's like, okay, what have you really got? Do you really want this?
0: Yeah, it is that that the Titus, isn't it? The, always, always everybody else's fault. Um, and yeah, I agree with you. It's just that's become so much more apparent. Is seeing that, and so going through. There's so many, so many places we can go from here. Um, so what I like, what I'd love to explore with you is you've mentioned that responsibility piece, and obviously you demonstrated that so powerfully. Back in the role that you had like the last role with Mercedes and but then juggling that with being a parent as well like what impact did that those work pressures that you were experiencing then as you said especially with an absent owner and all that type of stuff and needing to step up and make those decisions knowing that you probably were damned if you did you're damned if you didn't as far as the decisions that you made what was that like then to then go home from that and How did that impact your ability, I guess, to be, was present and connected with you, with your family as well?
1: It's hard to be present and connect with your family when they're tucked away in bed asleep. You know, so I had, it was very frustrating. It's frustrating as a parent, a young parent where, you know, you've really bitten off more than you can chew to some extent. Like it was, it's kind of like I was behind the whole time because when when we first found out we were pregnant, we both had jobs for $35,000 a year. And I did the numbers and I thought, well, okay, that's 70,000 between two people. Now we're going to be three of us and I'm going to have to all, all of that. I needed to double my income. It's a lot of pressure for a 23 year old. And it's kind of like I was always playing catch up. So it's frustrating. Yeah, you come you come home, your kids might be awake, you ha- have something to eat for dinner, and then you tuck them into bed and they're asleep. And this is where I think it gets quite blurred because a lot of people will say, oh, I'm doing this for my family or whatever. But if you never see them, then it's it's a really tough one. And on the days that I did have off, uh, towards the end, I started to be able to get some weekends off, which was good respite. I would, I would often have to just we'd just go around to the parents and law and I'd read the newspaper and just drink coffee. I didn't really have much else in me. I'd go to take the kids to some soccer games or whatever. I feel like I was quite present in their life uh but the youngest one was about uh about t- twelve twelve or thirteen by the time I finished work full time now with a four year old where I've been home every single day of her life. And she probably doesn't even know that I work because I do my calls when she's getting kindergarten, et cetera. Um, It's completely different. And so I I totally acknowledge that it is not necessarily practical for many people, but I would encourage anyone who's a parent, at least put the phone down or spend more time with your kid while they're there because they grow up so quickly. My oldest kid is 28. Uh, you know, it's, it happens quickly. Um, I don't have any regrets because everything that happened had to happen to get to where I'm at now. And it's been a journey, but it definitely weighed down on me. It, it, there were times when I wasn't getting enough exercise. I wasn't feeling, uh, like I was having a great time. Um, I felt frustrated that I couldn't spend more time with the kids, but I, but also, there were escalating needs for housing and food, et cetera, just because of costs and some of the choices we made. There were things I wasn't keen to compromise on. For example, I didn't want to move to a regional city. I didn't want to move way out um, to a faraway place in in the outskirts. You know, I had, there were certain things I, I didn't want to compromise on, which meant, okay, I'm going to have to put my nose to the grindstone. But I think at the end, Happily, I think it turned out to be a diamond. It was all that pressure on the coal to make a diamond. But I have seen a lot of other people who haven't handled it well. I feel a lot of gratitude that I don't smoke, I don't drink alcohol, I don't take drugs. I really have very few, if any, bad habits. I'm very, very healthy now at this stage in life. And I got through it, but only through doing the work on that, the mental side of it. And I've seen it defeat a lot of people. There's a lot of broken people out there who who can't surmount this, so it's a tough one. I mean, I wouldn't advocate people having so many kids so quickly at such a young age um, it's if you do that you're going to have a different life than someone who's you know there are people out there selling or selling a message that you can have a hundred million dollar business and they're thirty years old and they work seven days a week and they don't have kids and I can't relate to that it's a very different life. It's a choice and they're going to have different outcomes. So I guess whatever you have in your life as a situation, make sure you work out what the priorities are and focus on that. But if you start justifying things that aren't true, that's when you have to watch out. So I guess at some point, probably about 10 years ago, uh, I had to make some really serious life decisions about how do I want the rest of my life to go. When I hit about 40, it's like, okay, so far, we got to here, what do I want the next phase to look like? And I had to start changing things. And and as kids move out of home and do their own thing or whatever, you've got the option. That's how I was able to move interstate. That was not really an option until the last few years. But now I'm able to do that. And you can start ticking all the boxes. It took me until, until then, about until the age of 50, to finally achieve my goal of living in the type of home I wanted to live in that I'd harbored since I was 20. You know, like it can take a a long time to pan out. uh, If you, if you've got a few obstacles along the way.
0: Yeah. And it's, you've had that clarity, but with kids, it's, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Because it's like, that's a.
1: Respect to any parent. I'm telling you, like even with one four-year-old now and two parents, like we are hands on. To to really do it right, it's it's demanding. But it's also, I'll say that for the last five years, let's, let's count a bit of that last part of maternity. Um, the last five years is probably the thing that I'm the most proud of, of anything I've ever done in my life, because I feel like we've given this the best possible shot. Like we've put everything into it and you can see it manifesting in what what you're creating here, what behaviours a result. The investment in doing good child caring is so profound. And I think importantly, what I'm saying is it's much easier now with the internet than it was when my kids were coming out. That there was no internet. Uh, and so there are game changes every, every few generations that will profoundly change things. It's much different now. There's a lot more possibilities for some people than what they could have done before. And for the bulk of the population, it took until a pandemic for them to realize you can actually even work from home, which is why a lot of people don't want to go back to work.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a tricky one to, you know, people don't like change. And then when the changes happened, then they don't want to change it back the other way again either, isn't it? But so there's benefits in these things. And I think that's what's something that I, I, I really love about these unexpected changes that come up is they they shake up the complacency and the status quo and it forces, well, I see it as an opportunity to do something differently. I really like that you've shared that and and well done. And also having this opportunity now with your daughter to do things an entirely different way. Um, and also to, to be in a position to be able to be so hands-on because in the big Issue that we're seeing so much of these days is because of cost of living, lifestyle choices, and things like that. Is that so many people are handing their kids to a daycare centre at six weeks old, and it's like the system's raising your child, not you.
1: Well, that's and you'd have to wonder what's what it's going to be like for those kids down the track, um and you know, like uh, the other day at kindy, the teacher asked what school she's going to next year, and I told her and, and I said, is that a good one? She goes, look, your daughter will be fine in any school. She's so well prepared for it. Um, and I don't say that about everyone. But I felt like um, it's not like pat myself on the back, good job, dad. It's kind of like, Phew, you know, like a bit of relief that what seems like uh, has been quite an effort is, you know, is showing the results that that would be good. And I've learned quite a lot about having kids now since I've got five of them that kids are really just DNA that want to propagate and you don't own your kids and they're not you they're their own thing and to some extent be fairly selfish little kids are very selfish right you know they scream and they want food you have to do a lot for them lucky they're cute or you just wouldn't keep them right but the 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 thing is they're going to go off and do their own thing so they're not you and a lot of parents live through their kids so I'm not I, you know, I don't tell my kids what they have to do or that I'd be disappointed if they're not a doctor or a vet or whatever else, even though one of them is. It's like, you just have a good life. If, if I can do that, I've done a good job. But it's very rewarding as much as it is challenging. It's it's like you get the positive from it. Uh, parenting is so demanding and so challenging and uh, you don't really get an instruction manual and it, it's a very difficult thing to do. And I feel for those parents who have to put a kid in childcare at six weeks. And I, I, I can really relate to that struggle. It was just frightening and shocking when we started having kids in the beginning. It's like to do it now at a later stage properly, it's kind of like closing the chapter on that. I f- feel like I've experienced it from both ends of the spectrum.
0: From everything I've seen Parenting is probably there's so much about sales and leadership you learn from being a parent.
1: It's it's critical. Like um, a few things I've understood now is that your child just wants to be like you. They want to do what you do. And also, I've experienced the amount of programming you do with a kid before they're five is really going to have a big impact on them later on. If you shut them down when they ask questions, like don't ask questions, just do what I say, you're literally teaching them to be compliant and not inquisitive. You're turning off all the great creativity of a kid. If you read stories to your kid and answer questions, I know that brings them out and encourages them. So I feel like it's so critical. And I'm still learning about this stuff. There are lots of parenting channels and stuff you can see on Instagram and so forth. The way that you communicate with a kid when they're being difficult will, you know, it pushes every parent. Every parent is going to be pushed to the brink with a a kid when the kid has a tantrum in the shopping center and they melt down and you feel that flush of embarrassment, you know, like, Is everyone looking at me. And, uh, and you just feel like a terrible parent, like, or when, when you go to a sports event and your kid's the one mucking up or not doing the thing, and you think every other parent's looking at you thinking, what a terrible parent, like these are real feelings that every parent's going to have. There was a kid the other day when we went to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and, and it was grading and on grading day, you have to do these exercises to get the stripe or the new belt. And this kid there, it just, he just wouldn't, wouldn't do it. They were trying like, Hey, we're going to sign. We're doing a sig, we're doing a certificate now. If you could just do this one move, we can give it to you. And I could see the parents just like collapsing in just despair. Just like, just do the move. Like, please, you're embarrassing me in front of everyone. There was like 50 parents there. It was it's like I felt the pressure, this poor lady, uh, we've all been there if' you're, if you're a parent, but I do think it helps uh, it helps with resilience. If you go out into the regular world and things don't go your way, it doesn't really stack up against a public tantrum in terms of uh, embarrassment level or whatever.
0: Yeah. My gosh. The jujitsu is so good for the kids though, isn't it? It's
1: the best. I wish I did that as a kid and I wish all the other ones did. It's it's like learning how to be confident with your body and having fun with physical activity and the discipline of, of lining up in order and going at certain times. And it's it really teaches the kid a lot. And it also teaches the parent. I've learned so much watching, you know, but it's fascinating when they spar watching four-year-olds like flip each other over and control them and it's like wow you know what good skills to have
0: I I think it's great like my my boyfriend he's also got five kids and so his um, four and five-year-old nearly five and six-year-olds they've been doing jiu-jitsu for a year and and it was one of those times where the four-year-old he'd been told he was going to get his stripe if he just did everything the next time but then what I really loved is the next week he thought, okay, I'm going to do everything. I got the stripe. Right. He did everything. And the, the instructor said, uh, no, you're not going to get your stripe this week because you can't just do things just because you're going to get a stripe. And it's so much life lesson. So yeah, any parents out there, definitely get your kids into Jiu Jitsu. No matter boy, girl, age. great oh, Great community so,
1: too. They're so, so
0: welcoming. Community. Yeah, so that's awesome, and yeah, I said lots, lots to learn about resilience. And there, are, I've seen just a, fr- a friend that's been doing it for years, just getting his, you know, next belt. And it's definitely is a test that resilience, but that commitment, the discipline, the consistency. And as my boyfriend shared, there's something only you get to learn about what's really challenging when you've got someone got you in a chokehold. Do you?
1: That's it. Oh, I mean, my daughter's her finger got bent a little bit one day. Another boy bumped into her and just smacked her flat down on the floor during a game and she'll have a a little moment and then compose herself and then go back out. And that's, they're the little moments now that I think will be important later on.
0: Yeah, that definitely. And especially the sub five, sub seven. I think a lot of us have spent our thirties and forties trying to undo a lot of the stuff that happened. And when you recognize the importance of those times and the impact it has on their entire lives, it's definitely something to pay attention to, isn't it? So... I'm glad that you've made those changes in your life, and then also that you're able then to mentor and coach others in order to do that as well in their own businesses too. So I appreciate everything that you've done and everything that you are doing. And yes, your name keeps coming up over and over again as somebody that is so respected and admired in the space. So yes, thank you again, and and I I appreciate you sharing and continuing to share.
1: Oh, thank you, Stacey, and it's um, it's important work that you're doing, and. We need more of that. We need more support. It's incredible how many conversations I have, especially privately with people who are uh, struggling against something that there are a lot, of, a lot of people out there in pain. I remember that saying, saying there's not a person on the planet you wouldn't love if you knew their true situation. And I'm always mindful of that. Rather than being quick to judge or quick to react. You know, you see some of these Facebook community posts, I'm sure you get them in your community where people post things and then just get absolute hate for it. And I think these people are being unfair because uh, people generally would rather have love and support than this hatred piled on them. And it's a pretty toxic situation. So we, we do need people in our corner who are prepared to listen to us and support us and not judge us.
0: Yeah, it's super important. And the support Another one of those resilience rocks, you know, support and connection with the people around you And it's two ways. So it's having those people that you can reach out and share that you are struggling because there's so much stigma, particularly for people that in the entrepreneur space or in the oh. sales space where it's just so highly competitive and it's all about how great people are doing. The more that we can have these conversations where we can go, look, you know, what, It's not always like that. And, you know, to be able to do that, and it can just be one conversation that can completely change someone's life. So making sure that there's that, you know, support and connection. And it's something that I really love about having these conversations around resilience and being able to encourage that. And when resilience, not just about, geez, how do you cope, but how do we actually support and encourage the people around us as well? And it's, it's not all about just celebrating all the success, celebrating success is important but sharing openly and vulnerably about the things that are difficult along the way, that are real along the way. So I think the more we can do that, the better. And I I love that you're doing that, helping the people in your community with keeping it real as well. So there's going to be be more success. We're going to have more people that are taking ownership and responsibility in a world where everyone is pointing the finger at someone else. I think the more that like-minded people like ourselves, can support and encourage other people. I think they're trying to overcome some of that toxicity and that negativity and the haters, they're always going to be there. But if we can be some of the people that are going to shine the light on the good stuff that's out there, that's why the lighthouse is up there. It'll be shining the light. That's such a
1: vivid picture. I've been, been admiring that.
0: It's just a reminder to myself that the job of the lighthouse is to shine the light, not to save the boats. And in all of our worlds, we've all got an opportunity to influence and be a lighthouse in the world of the people around us. And there was one more aspect on the resilience rocks piece as well. So, obviously, resilience being, no, it rocks all these different areas of our life. It's a rock as in a foundation, but there is a musical twist to it as well. So, I do have a playlist on Spotify called Resilience Rocks. And music is one of those resilience rocks that you can change your state three to five minutes with any piece of music. So I'd love to know for you whether it's something that that either lifts you up, settles you down, or just gets you grounded. What's your go-to song that you would play in order to change your state in a quick space of time?
1: Probably play Led Zeppelin and it would probably be The Ocean. You're right, music is incredibly strong for anchoring. We have playlists by sort of category. When my daughter was young, we... Would play the playlist every single time we put it to sleep because she would uh, get familiar with it. And because we were traveling a fair bit, it doesn't matter where we were, she had something stable that she could anchor. Uh, we have a playlist for our house and we have a playlist for driving. But I'd say for me, yeah, to be that, that Led Zeppelin was really a strong part of my life when I was about 18. I used to have a fast car and I'd just put Led Zeppelin on and drive around also when i was becoming independent i'd left school i was doing laboring jobs and i'd drive my v8 U across sydney to my laboring job and play this music and lose myself in that in that classic 70s era stuff that i hadn't really been exposed to before because my parents were more into things like the tijuana brass band and patsy bisco sort of stuff <laughs> so it was like they had pretty contemporary tastes and i'd i was sort of getting into the more Uh, crazy hard rock you know probably the best band ever in the world or close to it I'd say and I, I, I appreciate one thing about Led Zeppelin is it turns out that they would pay attention to who was particularly good before them like good songs and then they would just play them better they had better drums better vocals better lead guitar and better bass guitar and they could make magic out of previously done songs or influences they might have heard. I know there's some court cases back and forth about that, but they were really good at reinventing the already good. And the first four albums, I think, were mostly other songs. So that, that says a lot about their ability to produce and and bring it out to market, but it's definitely a shift.
0: I, I like that. I'm a big fan of the Led Zeppelin stuff too. I had Cashmere as my ringtone for Back before you could actually play the song and it was just Nokia music, like the Toads. And I also love what you said there about what they did. And I think there's the lessons that there is in business and life as well, isn't it? It's looking at what's already out there and rather than just starting from scratch, it's okay, what can you take from what's already out there and what can you do better and then evolve that into something greater? It's an
1: easy starting point, isn't it?
0: Yeah, modelling but with your own style. Yeah, that's it. Because there's often a perception that there's a whole idea that you need to be completely original. It's
1: hard to do. You can have your own original style, but I mean, let's face it, before my book, Work Less, Make More, there were books out there like 4-Hour Workweek, but you find your own truth and your own perspective on things. And when I set out to have that book done, I had no idea that's what it would end up being called we just took my body of work and where I was at and then put it together and then labeled it in hindsight. And it turned out to be, that was the message. And so it's not like, oh, we're going to, we're going to make our version of this. We're going to like, what have we got? And then what should we call it?
0: Title coming last is a good lesson sometimes, isn't it?
1: Yeah. It's not how they do YouTube videos these days. It's like thumbnail first or don't bother making it.
0: So talking about your book, so Work Less, Make More, where can people pick up a copy of that? And where can people connect best with you um, if they would like to learn more about what's happening in your world and how they can work less and earn more themselves?
1: So Work Less, Make More is on Amazon and Audible. If you want the easy option, it's also free on my website at com. And I'm James Schramko on all the usual socials, except for TikTok, which I don't play with. <laughs>
0: Oh it's one of those ones isn't it it's um yes very controversial I definitely encourage people to connect with James your reels are amazing I'm always picking up little bits of gold in there so definitely reach out and connect with James and again thank you so much for the conversation today it's been wonderful I've learned a lot and it's been a lot of fun too
1: Oh it's been nice to be able to share this and hope someone gets some inspiration or a little bit fired up to go and grab the control. So I think that's really the most important message that everyone goes through struggle and that uh, quite often you can get through it. And that's the positive message.
0: Awesome. So yeah, don't shy away from the struggle. There's gold on the other side of it. And it's a big vision of mine is to help people to see how they can turn their obstacles into opportunities and see problems as possibilities. So it's a good place to be. There are going to be no shortage of problems. So change your perception of how you look at them and then you can grow from them and become greater in the process. Thanks again James for joining me today on Resilience Rock Sales. Thanks for joining us again this week on Resilience Rock Sales. Don't just listen though, take action. The best sales professionals are always learning. Head over to resiliencerocks.com now to go backstage and get the resources mentioned today to help rock your sales goals.